Hello, Channel Pros. Welcome to the Channel Journeys podcast. Thank you for listening during this crazy, busy end of the year. For all of us on a calendar fiscal year, it's the final push for Q4, and we have the World Cup, college football championships, holiday parties, preparations for Christmas, a lot going on. Last episode, I encouraged you to slow down occasionally for some peace and joy. This weekend, I had a chance to slow down to enjoy the holiday season. On Saturday, I went out for a very fun 60-mile bike ride with my bike group in the morning. And that evening, we went out to an incredible Christmas concert over at my church. And on Sunday, we went to see the Nutcracker after church. What a great way to recharge the batteries and get in the holiday spirit. I'm Rob Spee, the host of Channel Journeys. I'm a cycling, sailing, and channel fanatic. And on Channel Journeys, I get the chance to speak with channel experts who share real-life stories of what works and what doesn't. We're all facing the same challenges in building successful partnerships and partner ecosystems. One of the things that I'm working on at Beyond Trust is our 2023 go-to-market strategy. We are mapping out how we're going to leverage our partner ecosystem in emerging markets versus more mature developed markets. In emerging markets where you don't have any sales infrastructure, that can be a great fit for the 100% channel sales model. While developed markets where you have sales reps and sales engineers, that could be better suited for a co-sell model. But co-selling can be challenging for both the vendor reps and the partner reps. How can you co-sell without creating conflict between your sellers and your partners? For today's episode, I am rebooting the conversation I had on my second podcast with Rich Blakeman. He's a strategic channel consultant and the author of The Hybrid Sales Channel. Rich does the best job I've ever heard describing how to overcome channel conflict when co-selling. You're going to hear about a hybrid selling model that leverages the unique talents and strengths of your own sales reps and your partners. Before we begin, I want to give a big shout out to Allbound, the sponsor of Channel Journeys. If you are setting up a new partner portal or maybe you're swapping out an old one, you need to check them out. Allbound is the maker of a world-leading partner portal that vendors rely on to manage their diverse partner ecosystems. That can include managing your dealers or master agents, your VARs and distributors, as well as alliance partners and system integrators. Allbound is fast and easy to set up, and their user interface makes it really easy on partners to collaborate on co-selling, co-marketing, as well as ramp up your partners on training and certification. So be sure to check them out at allbound.com. All right, are you ready to learn how to grow sales and profits using a hybrid sales channel? Let's go. This is Channel Journeys, the podcast for channel professionals. Here you will meet and learn from channel experts who share their channel victories, defeats, and lessons learned along the way. Here's your host, channel chief and adventure seeker, Rob Spee. All right, Rich. Hey, good morning and welcome to Channel Journeys, our new podcast. It's great to have you on the show. Rob, I appreciate you asking me. It's been uh, a long journey for the two of us. We've known each other for a while and I appreciate you reaching out to ask me to be on the show. It has been a long journey, and I'm very interested in learning more about your channel journey, especially what brought you to the point of writing a book about the channel, and, and I want to dive into that book, The Hybrid Sales Channel. Before we do that, though, Rich, let's get to know you a little bit. Take us back. I, it looks like from LinkedIn, maybe one of your first jobs was IBM. How did you even get started coming out of college and, and thinking about what you wanted to do? Getting to IBM was simple. My, my father-in-law... It was a 37-year IBMer. I was coming out of college. I was a United Methodist preacher, and 
realized after a couple of years that that was not going to be my lifelong calling at IBM for 19 years. Wait and a second. You, you started out as a United Methodist preacher. And then moved to IBM to preach a different gospel. <laughs> well, this is a podcast first, our first United Methodist preacher. There you go. And, and along that path, while, while I, I don't know, I probably did 14 different jobs at IBM in 19 years, including time working with partners of IBM as, as part of my role, but left there to go to work for a partner of Oracle and Sybase, left there to go to work for a partner of a couple of ISVs, left there to go and be the software application development side of a large distributor in the telco equipment space, took a couple of hiatuses outside of technology, and then ended up at consultancy for 10 years at Miller-Hyman, half of which was spent leading direct sales and direct sales consultancy. And then we bought a channel sales consultancy, and I moved over to run that for five years. And it was during that period of time that I decided that, you know, the world needed a book on both the combination of direct and indirect sales and something I knew about both sides of and had experience. So I spent time there. Doesn't bring me quite to today, but it brings me to today's subject anyway. So along that journey, it sounded like you started out more on the direct sales side and then started getting engaged in channel sales. What type of problems were you solving for your clients around the channel? And do you think those are maybe different problems than what clients would be facing today? I think most everyone ends up solving the same problems. The first and number one largest long-term problem is how do we get a better influence capability around the behaviors that drive the results that we need? Because most senior executives are uncomfortable with being in an influence without authority dependency on a revenue stream. How do you refine your ability to influence behavior that creates results? And you're talking about how do you influence the behavior of the partner? Yes. So we did most of our consulting work with vendors. And, and, and so what, are some of, what are some of the things that you would, some tips that you would provide them to, to gain that influence? Less, less tips than, than process around partner planning, process around relationship management, process around understanding the business from the partner's point of view. I mean, everybody knows and has seen partner managers who drop in once a quarter with reports from the vendor's point of view, basically asking them, how come you're not selling more of my stuff? You know, how do you, how do you break that paradigm and get yourself into your partner's shoes and really understand them better, understand their business model better and, and therefore influence what they're able to do better because they actually like you, respect you and think you understand what they're trying to accomplish. 
So what you're talking about is not coming in as the vendor saying, hey, partner, what did you do for us lately? It's how can we add value to your business and having those business conversations. Right. Exactly right. So let's, let's talk about the book, The Hybrid Sales Channel. What inspired you to write a book in the first place? Uh, you're going to think this is silly, Rob. Ten years that I was with Miller Hyman, I worked out of a home office, and I've got a very large collection of books and a very large collection of sales books. And many of them are written by personal friends of mine and people I've developed relationships with over the years in, in sales. And the longer I've looked at that shelves of books written by people I know, the longer I was convinced that none of them were any smarter than I was or had a more unique point of view than I did. They just had the discipline to figure out a differentiated point of view and then work through the very difficult work, developing the concept and getting it published and physically going through the effort of writing and editing and re-editing and re-editing and getting it out in the marketplace. And so I, it was more a... If they can do it, I can do it. That's an interesting story. And a lot of times we have ideas of, of things we want to start. It might be a new business. It might be writing a book. And it might be, for me, going on a sailing adventure or whatever, you going on a cycling trip. We have the ideas, but something gets you over the line to actually start and do it. What Was there something that finally prompted you to one day just get up and start writing? Mm, no, it wasn't so much get up and start writing. It was... Uh write up a one-page brief and and take it to my CEO and put it on his desk and said, here's what I want to write. And do you mind if I write this book evenings and weekends? And, you know, will you stand behind it as the company and put the company's marketing resources behind it? And it was just the initiative to get that part done and everything flowed from there. Well, yeah, now once you've got your CEO on board, you're, you're, you're pretty much committed, right? You can't back down after that. You know, there's some magic in that, Rob. <laughs> it's sharing your ideas with others, just like me sharing the idea with others of, of starting this podcast. It, suddenly you feel, well, I really better do it now that I've told others that I'm going to go ahead with this. So the hybrid sales channel, let's talk about that first. What, what do you really mean by a hybrid sales channel? Our, our listeners may not be familiar with. Well, in the book, I use a couple of of, of simple analogies. One of them is most people are familiar with, with the ability to grow hybrid seeds, fruits, plants, where you take the best strains of a variety of different kinds of, could be grapes, could be seeds, whatever, and mature them over time to grow the best product. The other is taking a really strong look at a current hybrid car. Let's you know use a Prius as an example that has a battery, that has a gas engine, that has brakes, and that all of them are designed for a very specific purpose that maximizes their own specific purpose. And they don't overlap each other at all. They each are used for what they're best at. And when circumstance arises that the other portion of the system is best at it, 
then that portion of the system is used. And so taking both of those and applying them to selling and looking at how do you take what you have available in a direct sales force and indirect sales force, how do you do the same thing rather than how do you just do what we've done for decades and divide them? It's either direct or it's indirect. How do you take the advantages of the strengths of each approach and bring them together to create stronger results than separating them? So an example of that, are you talking about, so a partner, for example, their strengths could be the relationships that they have with a set of customers. Maybe it's their service capabilities. The strengths of the vendor could be in their knowledge of the product and their their pre-sales demo capability. Is that what you're talking about? It could be. You know, you've really got to look at sort of the, the whole value chain from the customer's point of view and look and see who brings what to the table in every way that you segment your market. I speak often, probably too often, with a very simplistic phrase that says that selling is all about how the customer buys and not how you want to sell. And so if, if you take a look at how your customer wants to buy in each segment of your market, size, industry, geography, take your pick, however you want to segment your market, and align the resources and capabilities that are necessary to satisfy how the customer wants to buy, agnostic to whether at what point in time in the sales cycle the best resources and approaches are direct or indirect, and find a way to do that systematically, then you're going to win more business than if you force the customer to buy the way that you want to sell. Because at the end, you can't force a customer to buy the way that you want to sell. They're going to buy the way they want to buy. Well, that's a, that's a simple, it sounds like a simple approach. It makes a lot of sense starting from the customer. How do they want to buy? Where do they want to buy? How much do you think that has changed given the change in the buyer's journey? You know, with digital transformation, the web, customers today are are getting a lot of information before they even come and start looking to the vendor. And so that whole buyer's journey has changed. What impact does that have on the hybrid sales channel and on the partner? It, it it, It makes it more acute. It makes the need more acute, Rob, because there's not an answer anymore. Each individual buyer is going to approach the way they buy more uniquely than the assumptions that might have gotten made 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago about how you can influence a buyer's behavior because so much of a buyer's behavior has already been influenced before you're even aware there's a buyer available. So there's a more acute need to put the right resource with the right piece of the puzzle in the right place at the right time in the buyer's journey and not be tied down to, you know, well, I'm sorry, this is, this is the way we've designed it. So, so this is how we go to market, Mm -hmm. but you've got to do it. You've got to do it systematically and you've got to have a, a systematic approach because you don't want direct sales reps doing the same thing that partner sales reps are doing and partner managers are doing and have everybody have the same job. Everybody gets paid the same thing on everything, or you've got a chaotic approach to how you do your business. 
you know, as we were talking about that, it just struck me too, from a marketing perspective, obviously the marketing role has shifted with the change in buyer's journey and there's, there's vendor marketing and there's partner marketing. So is there a hybrid marketing approach as well that vendors should be thinking about for success in the channel? You know, I haven't really dug into that very far, Rob. I think you're seeing more evolution away from traditional MDF and back-end rebates and kind of cost-oriented relationships are the things that are going to, you know, solve all of the marketing needs on the planet that are, you know, kind of traditional vendor mechanisms while they still exist out there. I think, and I can tell you from experience in in my own role, in my own business leading channels for my business today that I'm in, I'm looking for what skills and resources can the vendor bring to the table and can the partner bring to the table that make the most sense to drive business, not necessarily some pre-canned program. I think that's the million dollar question right now, Rich, as we're all trying to figure out. There's a huge shift going on in the channel and technology and the channel programs have to evolve as well with it. And we're all trying to figure that out. No doubt. No doubt. So one thing I love about your book, and I hope all the listeners here will get a copy and read it is it, it isn't a dry book. It's a great read. It's a fun story. And it, it's, it all starts on a cocktail napkin as you, as you launch into it. And I'm wondering now, is that a true story? It takes place at the altitude bar on the rooftop in Singapore. And now I know that Singapore was one of your favorite, most interesting places to visit. Was that a true story? Well, how, how true are all sales stories that you've encountered? <laughs> it's like a fishing story, yeah, don't, right? Don't, I mean, don't, don't, don't all stories that are told about selling have some amount of truth to them and have some amount of hyperbole. Sure. sure. Uh, so a, a story like that is is both a collection of truths and yet also designed for purpose. So let's let's call it that. <laughs> well, fair enough. And have you been to the Altitude Bar? Oh, no doubt. <laughs> Some people will say that the Marina Bay Sands has a great view, but number one, it's looking the wrong direction. It doesn't have a as good a 360 degree view. Number two, it's a bunch of people in a swimming pool that are kind of annoying. The Altitude Bar has, without question, the best view in Singapore. Well, I'm going to have to visit. I was in Singapore about a year ago, last Easter, to do some channel training of our, of our Asian cams. And we did go to Marina Bay Sands. We were on the rooftop there. I thought that was a fantastic place. So if the Altitude Bar is even greater, I've, I've got to visit there. Yep. Just... You'll get a different perspective, and it's got a very different vibe, and drinks might cost you a little bit more. <laughs> well, Singapore is a very cool place. What an interesting town. So another question for you, how do you distinguish the role in this hybrid model? And this is a question that I came across as I was really trying to execute and implement what you talk about, executing this hybrid sales approach. And I often would run into the questions of, of what's really the role of the sales rep, the vendor sales rep, versus the role of the channel account manager or partner account manager. And there was often concern about maybe duplicating efforts and, hey, I don't want to turn my sales rep into a partner manager. 
And the channel guy is saying, well, we don't want to turn our channel account managers, our partner managers into sales reps. How did you kind of grapple that and distinguish those two roles? Well, it's, it's really the simplest distinction is, is a, an end customer distinction. For the most part, a partner account manager has neither the time nor the business to be involved in the end customers of the partner. And nobody in their own company wants the partner account manager to be involved in the end customers of the rec team. If you put the right skills with the right pieces of the buyer's journey, with the right pieces of what it takes to win business, combining partner selling skills with direct sales selling skills or segmenting partner sales skills from direct rep sales skills into the right place at the right time, then they're facing the end customer and the partner account manager is doing what they're traditionally responsible to do. And that's manage the account, manage the relationship, manage the plan to drive the total volume through the channel, but not get down into the weeds of transactions and driving individual business. Now, I realize a lot of partner account managers don't like to hear that because they're getting beat up, you know, at the end of every month or at the end of every quarter about deals that are in the pipeline and what do they know about them and how involved are they in them. But primarily, that's not the design of the motivation of a partner account manager. Well, and, and I've seen cases where your partner account manager was formerly a sales rep who got shifted into a that partner manager role. And it's often hard for them to pull themselves out of that transactional view and lift themselves up to much more of a strategic consultant partner manager role. And if anything, if you do this right and you blend together partner sales reps with direct sales sales reps in a territory and segment it correctly and segment it by activity, segment it by the, the spaces within an account or the accounts within a territory or the accounts within industry segments, whatever the puzzle pieces may be, then you find some growth available for the direct sales rep to be able to act a bit more like a sales manager with the partner sales reps, even though they have no authority to manage them like a sales manager. They have the ability to start to learn what that's like when they're all going after the same goal. You know, to us, it seems so logical for a sales rep to become a sales manager in effect by having a team of reps out there who work for the partners out there selling for them. And now they have the scale and the reach and can really have a, a magnitude of effort from this channel team. But many times you see direct sales reps who don't come out of a culture of working with a the channel, they're still very reluctant and resistance. And maybe it's partly a control issue. They have a fear of letting go and letting go of their accounts to the channel partners. How have you dealt with that in, in your roles? Partly a control issue. You, did you really use that word? <laughs> I, I was did being you, generous. Did you not, did you, did you not read the chapter about seagulls? <laughs> I may have to go back to that one, Rich. Yeah, go back and read about seagull behavior. Is that and from the, the movie? Watch, mine, mine, and, mine? and watch and watch Finding Nemo one yes. more time. It's and, coming back and to it, me. And it will tell you everything you need to know about why individuals act the way they act 
and why when they act that way, they lose more often than they win. And rather than make this a mystery and you know cause people to go buy books, it's very simple. If you remember the, the scene happened in Sydney Harbor and Nemo's dad and Dory are flopping on the dock and there's a bunch of seagulls that are identified them as food and a pelican, which is also capable of eating fish, decides to protect the two of them and picks them up in their beak. And the pelican flies off with the two fish in its beak to protect him, being chased by a hundred seagulls. And the hundred seagulls, Rob, are all saying what? Mine, mine, mine. Right. So every one of them thinks that's my prospect, my opportunity, mine. And they all fly and they chase until the pelican tilts its wings 90 degrees, flies between the mast and the sail, and flies away, and all the birds get stuck with their beaks sticking through the sail, and the customer flies away. And even (laughs) as the customer flies away, the seagulls are all still saying, mine, 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 even with their beaks stuck through the sail. This This is seagull behavior we're talking about, and it doesn't make any sense, but it's historic. And it's driven by quota, it's driven by compensation systems, it's driven by upper management, it's driven by lower management, it's driven by heritage, but it gets in the way of results. It does. So, so how, how do you deal with it? You identify, yeah, that's the question then. You identify, you identify it, you call it out, and you, de- and, you, and you declare on behalf of your company that that we're a company that is more interested in how the customer buys than how we sell. And we're going to sell in the most effective way to meet how the customer wants to buy, whatever that is. And we're all going to be on board with that. Or those who can't get on board with it have to find someplace else to go work because that's what we do here. That doesn't happen without that executive level buy-in and commitment. Absolutely to, to correct. That message. Absolutely correct. You can't make any of this change without starting at the top. That gets to another question I had, and this is another chapter in your book. It's about alignment, and you have a chapter about making extraordinary things happen through company alignment and inspiring that shared vision. Can you talk a little bit about that, how you've been able to inspire that shared vision with executives and then down the ranks? Well, other than having that, senior leader champion it's really about having a systematic way to portray not only what the objective is and how it aligns with what the company's trying to accomplish and having you know a simplistic graphical model that portrays it but then be able to connect everybody's job and every piece of the change back to how that's going to help drive that big picture and Absent the ability to do that, the individual has no motivation to change because they can't see how it's going to drive the big picture, and therefore there's nothing in it for them. And most of that, at the end of the day, while it's started at the top and the alignment happens, it falls to the first-line manager to be able to actually cause the change to happen. And with all of that, Rich, are you going to get alignment if the compensation plans aren't aligned? to that very strategy? You're not, but you're also not going to get alignment if you think that you can solve the whole thing by a compensation strategy. Mm -hmm. Let's just change the comp plan and therefore behavior follows comp. It, it, It might for a short period of time, 
but people will revert back to, you know, what they know. And so the comp changes have to be in alignment with whatever the vision is, whatever the company's trying to accomplish, whatever wherever they stand in their marketplace, and therefore how these changes support that change. Comp has to be a part of it, not the reason for it. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So with this talk of the hybrid sales approach, is there a particular market segment where that makes more sense? I'm thinking, is there a market segment, say, small business, mid-market, where it might be a channel-only approach? Or is channel-only still, in fact, a hybrid approach? That's a big question for a short podcast. The first thing I'd suggest is that there, there, there are too many different ways that companies look at segmenting to be able to answer that in a short question. And most of some examples of those different ways are are indeed laid out in the book. Of course, there are markets that should be channel only, but the the challenge with channel only markets is that you're still going to discover that your largest corporate accounts, for example, in some industries are still going to, you're going to find those channel only partners showing up, doing business in departments, doing business in remote locations, whatever, of those large corporate accounts. And unless you've planned that and figured out how do, how do you maximize that, then you're going to end up with conflict and you're going to end up with control mechanisms coming back into play, and it's going to be sub-optimized again. Well, this might just have to be a topic for another podcast interview then, because it's a, it's a meaty topic, but it's, it's hugely important. I think it's on the minds of a lot of different channel chiefs and companies about how do they segment between the, the role of the channel and role of direct sales. Completely understood. If it was easy, then none of us would get paid to do it. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's what I love about the channel. It's never easy. It's always challenging. The, the challenges are constantly changing. Every day is a new, new challenge popping up. So I'm curious, you wrote the book. What, what impact did that have on you, on your career? Anything that you've noticed since writing it? Well, curiously enough, within six months, eight months after launching it, I, not specifically because of it, but because it stirred some conversations. My next door neighbor, who is prominently featured also in the book, lived next door to him for 11 years and a long time sales leader as well. He and I sat down, we're talking about a number of things and on the very spur of the moment, decided to investigate whether it was a good idea for me to come and work with him at, at the firm he was working at. And so I went back to the other side of the desk again. And while I am not implementing as no one does, I'm not implementing, you know, kind of verbatim exactly a hybrid system because that, that doesn't fit the business needs of the business I joined. There's no question that what we are implementing in a number of different ways is aligning with how the customer wants to buy rather than how we want to sell and having that change how we go to market substantially in the last two years that I've been here than the 11 years the company was in business before I got here. Well, that's got to be the key takeaway from this talk and, and your book as well is, is lining up your sales strategy 
to how the customer wants to buy. It's sort of important, Rob. Yeah, it is. And I think we often miss it as, as simple as it sounds. So what's next? Is there going to be another book on the horizon? I don't know. Maybe. But, but if so, it might be on some completely different topic. I actually enjoyed writing the book. It wasn't, it wasn't a difficult labor like some people go through. It was, it was technically difficult, but I really enjoyed it. But I'm not going to turn into an author. So I think probably what's next will just follow my career and wherever that leads over the next eight, 10 years or so and see what comes naturally. The book came naturally at the right point in time. We'll see what comes naturally. Well, that's half the fun, right? Not knowing what's coming next. Exactly. So how about back to the rich personal side? Have you got any scuba trips lined up or cycling adventures? It's ski season in Colorado, Rob. So I just need to transfer my quads from my road bike over to, we've had five feet of snowfall already on as of December 4th in the mountains. So wow. I, have, I haven't taken the time to get up on the mountains yet. It's got a few too many things going on right at the moment, but it's, it's time for ski season. And you know, I'm, I'm blessed to live within two hours of the greatest skiing in the United States. And so I'll go spend some time doing that. And in the meantime, go sell some stuff. I miss that. I, I grew up in Seattle and grew up skiing there in, in the mountains around Seattle. But then I moved to Colorado to go to college in part because of the school, but I think in large part because of the Rockies and man, what fantastic skiing you have out there. Well, and now, you know, I can do both now because my season pass will let me ski at six areas and seven areas in Colorado, but it'll let me, it'll let me go ski for free at Whistler also. So, wow. you know, if, if I get bored, maybe I'll go ski at Whistler this season. I've never skied Whistler. It's one of the places I've always wanted to go to. Big mistake on both our parts. <laughs> well, we may just have to meet up at Whistler then, Rich. You name the date. That would be cool. Well, Rich, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation, very enjoyable, lots to learn here. And I hope the listeners will get a copy of your book and read it. I think it has something for anyone that wants to be successful in the channel. Appreciate it, Rob. I enjoyed the conversation and I'm glad we had the time to talk today. All right. Excellent. Take care, Rich. Thanks a lot. You too. All right, guys, there you go. I love Rich's analogy of the hybrid car where the battery, gas engine, and brakes are all designed for very different purposes, each adding value without overlapping. And that is the key to the hybrid sales channel. If you have not read Rich's book, I highly recommend it. It is as relevant today as the day he wrote it. One of the most powerful statements Rich makes is that selling is all about how the customer buys and not how you want to sell. Align your resources and capabilities and those of your partners with what is necessary to satisfy how the customer wants to buy. And I take that a step further today by also aligning to what your customer needs to drive success. Thank you for listening today. Thanks again to our sponsor, Allbound. I have spoken with Allbound customers and I can see why they have best-in-class reviews for user experience, ease of use, and customer support. If you're looking for an easier way to manage your partner ecosystem, be sure to check them out at allbound.com. For today's show notes, just go to channeljourneys.com slash CJ103. You can subscribe while you're there. And if you enjoyed the show, please take a few minutes, leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. It's hard to believe, but I've only got one more Channel Journeys episode for you in 2022. I'll launch that the last week of the year. I'm going to keep you in suspense as to who's going to be on the show. Until then, I wish you a very Merry Christmas and, of course, an awesome Channel Journey.